This episode is brought to you by Affordable Drill Towers. Founded in 2016 by our good friend Steve Sanguidoce, a retired Houston, Texas firefighter, the Affordable Drill Tower was designed and built with functionality and versatility in mind for any training ground. As a standalone training tower and add-on to an existing burn building or connect setup, the Affordable Drill Tower packs a massive punch at an affordable price tag. With over 50 towers across the country, from Massachusetts to California, Montana to Texas, professionally engineered, NFPA and ISO compliant, the Affordable Drill Towers brings the versatility to your training ground. From Main Street USA, the small town fire company in their back parking lot, to the training grounds of the largest metropolitan fire academy, the Affordable Drill Tower fits the bill for price and functionality. Check them out at AffordableDrillTowers.com. And two things I like to talk about also when talking about our friends over at Affordable Drill Towers. One, their customized training program. They have the ability to bring some of the best talent from across the country to your home turf after the install of the Affordable Drill Tower. Designing a customized training program for you and your department, Steve will facilitate some of the biggest and brightest names of the American Fire Service to come in and work with you and your department. And secondly, and I think most important, is Steve's belief in need over greed. The affordable drill tower company gives back to not-for-profits that support organizations in the American Fire Service. Organizations such as the Joey D Foundation, which is near and dear to Steve Sanguidoche's heart, as well as many other not-for-profits that he takes a part of. He takes great pride in providing funding for organizations that push this job forward. So check them out. Steve and Dennis over at Affordable Drill Towers. Send them an email at info at affordabledrilltowers.com. Check them out on social media. And their YouTube page is kicking butt with great information, training nuggets, and information about their towers. So check them out, Affordable Drill Towers, and let them know Jeremy over at National Fire Radio sent you. This episode's brought to you by Ridgeway Leatherworks. Ridgeway Leatherworks is a firefighter-owned and operated business as well as a family-run business, and that's what I love about it. Rob and his family are passionate about their customer service and the quality product and craftsmanship they put out for the emergency services. Rob's been on the show. We've been to his his business. We've seen them in action. I've even tried to hand-paint radio straps. I promise you, it is not as easy as what the final outcome looks like. The product is so good, it's so clean and crisp, and yet, man, it takes that steady hand. Rob's become a near and dear friend of our podcast, and you hear that over and over when we talk about our sponsors, that they're friends, supporters, and that's what this networking community is all about, is supporting one another. Ridgeway Leatherworks, Rob Meyer, crushing it. Quality and craftsmanship is number one. Customer service is right there with it. From custom radio straps, universal radio holsters, chin straps, flashlight holders, anti-sway straps, and locker tags made out of leather, there's plenty of opportunity along the way when you deal with Ridgeway Leatherworks. So check them out at RidgewayLeatherworks.com. Find them on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And tell Rob you heard about him on the National Fire Radio platform and give them a little pluck and tell them keep up the good work we need to support our firefighter owned businesses and especially family run businesses where his two daughters and his wife help out day in and day out along with his other employees so again ridgeway leatherworks check them out at ridgewayleatherworks.com and find them on all your social media channels
Yeah, and now it won't let me record. I think. Let me let me just explain a few things to you too. First off, Pip, the only reason I keep you around is because uh, for some reason I enjoy talking. There's no other reason. It's just strange. It's literally strange that I enjoy our conversations, and that's the only reason I tolerate you. That's it. We're not friends. I don't. I got that going for me, right? That's that's all highly debatable. I don't. I don't like you. I feel like it. That's like a big, a big like check in my boxes of things that I wanted in my life to but, be tolerated but, by Jeremy. But for some reason, you're therapeutic for me, so I talk to you. Well, because we gave you an outlet to vent and take away all those frustrations. Uh, so Seb, you- Seb, uh, not you. I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, you're talking you're about not- oh, okay, okay, okay. This okay. is why Seb, Seb yeah, tolerates me too, though. But I'm going to start billing you guys for the phone calls. I'm going to start keeping the time on the phone calls, and then it's just billable them. rates. Insurance you, you call payment. me, Pip? You call me? You call me, I feel like, more than I call you. Jeremy wow. calls me. You don't ever call me. I text you a lot, and, and I call Seb, you. You don't, have to take, you, Seb, you don't have to take that from him. He's not That's what I'm saying. I'll start, I'll start sending him billable hours. You should. <laughs> cool. Should, I'm going to pay it. you the same amount Jeremy pays you. Then. It's worth I He's getting don't you? No, know? yeah, we're getting paid. I knew this was BS. I knew the two of you were BSing me. Listen, if I wasn't taking care if I wasn't taking care of if I wasn't taking care of Sebi, man, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This is true. He would keep I think I wanted good. to take Sebi to Hawaii because I enjoy his company. Definitely I don't I didn't need him not. for that. And not only that, not only that, but the guy cost me money. He drinks like a fish. We'll talk about that in a minute. But like the guy everywhere we go, it's a cocktail. It's a cocktail. He can't do it. I'm following your lead, my guy. He can't do a six dollar beer. He does like a fourteen. There's no such thing as a six dollar beer in Hawaii. And umbrella. It's outrageous Funny. what this guy does. Funny. You can't even get a six dollar beer at a happy hour in New Jersey. What, what era are you living in, buddy? Hey Taylor uh, Swift, this isn't the nineties anymore. Like, let's be uh, real. What was that reference? You're referencing Taylor Swift? Yeah. Errors tour. Like it's referenced in all major Swifty. media. Definitely Swifty. Did you not why that's not wrong with being a Swifty? Do you understand you now why I don't like, like you? Like, do you get it? <laughs> oh boy. It's said not only that, but Pip today, I talked to him on the phone this morning. He's trying mm-hmm. to muscle his way into some of our trips now. So he's like, you know, yeah. I'm okay. I'm available to travel if you need me to go on any trips. And I'm like, no, these are <laughs> National Fire Radio trips. These aren't, these aren't the size exactly of what this answer was. We don't, we don't need to go and, like, talk to people when and we're tell recording. them to do better in life. Like, we don't, we don't need to do that. I have feelings. You know, no one cares. No, you don't. You have zero. <laughs> that's why I love you. Right. You're pretty that's why we get along so well. You yeah. know. You're really not hurting my feelings at all. I just felt I know that because we're recording like you're saying it. We are recording. recording. We had this banter going five minutes before we even started. And you guys said we might as well record this so everybody sees we the should true side of it. Jeremy. We should really so. start the show, though. We should start the show. Well, we now, are. Do you feel better, Jeremy? Like, no. feel- I've had so let's break it down. I've had a shitty day. Today's Monday. It's the first day back from Hawaii. I woke up this morning and uh, no, not in a good place, man. Uh, not in a good, I mean, this with some with some laughter behind it. This isn't all serious, but. It's getting back to routine after a week of what I've been exposed to and what I've learned about and the people I've met and the conversations we've had. And that's why Sebi's on with me today. Probably half the half our audience has no idea what he looks like. So he's that ugly mug with the you guys look like brothers, though. I'm going to lie. We right could, we could, we could definitely pull it off. I got to get my Hawaiian shirt and we're in. You know, I can the, the hangover. The conference hangover is real. People talk about that in the fire service. They go away for a conference. They go, they travel, they spend a weekend with guys and girls that are crushing it, that want to train, want to learn, want to do more. The social hours of conferences are fantastic where you get to 
have a cocktail or a beer or, 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 or whatever your, your poison is or break bread with a brother or sister. And you go to these conferences and a lot of times your own people don't go with you. And so when you come home, you're all jazzed up, ready to go. And then bang, reality hits you that your job doesn't care that you went away for the weekend to go learn or be better or do better. They don't care that you've made friends all over the country. They don't care that, you know, you want to be more enthusiastic or excited about the job. And it's not infectious. You come back and, in fact, guys look at you and tell you to shut up and go away because they don't care. They don't want to know. Um, That's that that's that conference hangover people talk about. I'm having that today um, with what we were exposed to in Hawaii for the past week. And um, it was an unforgettable trip, an opportunity that presented itself to us. And um, frankly, I miss it. I miss it terribly. Um, the the people we met, the friendships we've made, the stories we heard, the emotions that were shown, all of it. It was consuming. And um, I was talking to you this morning, Pip. So I saw Sebby last night. Seb left um, Thursday. He had to get back for a wedding. I didn't come home until Saturday. And for us, it's like a 22-hour flight on the way home. So with the six hour time change. So I didn't get home till Sunday morning. We left at, you know, one, one o'clock Hawaii time landed at, uh, you know, seven 30 this morning or yesterday morning in Newark. So it's a long day of flying and, and so on. And you can't sleep on a plane. It's near impossible. So you're just exhausted and jet lag and all of that. But I saw Sebi last night. I dropped off all the equipment. That's how we started this episode. I was swearing at Sebi because he has, everything I need for this podcast. So I'm not using my correct microphone. I'm using United Airlines headphones right now that they gave away for free to my daughter on the plane because they she only had Bluetooth headphones. And, and then I couldn't find the adapter. And here I am. Nothing's plugged in because before we left for Hawaii, we were in Wildwood for two days doing content with fire and safety. So I'm just a hot mess. And then, you know, you come back and you jump into reality. I had to go to work this morning. I had things I had to do. Um, responsibilities to fill the alarm went off at five 30 and off you go and it's back to it. And nobody gives a shit that you were gone for a week. Nobody cares about the emotional side of what we dealt with, the people we met and the stories we heard and the things we saw. Nobody cares because life goes on. Right. So it's that conference hangover. I'm having Hawaii hangover hundred percent today. And I am a rotten bastard because of it. I'm ornery. I'm angry. I just gave my wife a hug before because I was throwing shit across the living room because I'm going through all the NF4. We have, Seb, how many bags and crates of crap do we have? Numerous. Six. Six. Right? So big Pelican cases, big uh, toolboxes that have electrical lighting, sound, you name it, right? We have all these boxes. And so we condensed our stuff to go to Hawaii for this trip. So we didn't have to. I don't know how. I don't know how we did it. (laughs) We condensed it down into like two in a backpack. It was, it was insane. So there's equipment all over the place and I'm throwing shit in my living room. Cause I want to record with you guys today and I don't have anything I need. And Sebi lives 20 minutes down the road and I didn't feel like dealing with that, nor do I feel like seeing his ugly face. And here we are. <laughs> the thing is, is this, right? I didn't have everything I needed. So I literally lost my shit downstairs. And, uh, and then I, I walked in the kitchen and my wife is staring at me and I just stood there. I went like this and she comes over and I just give her a hug and I go, I'm sorry. She's like, you good. We need you here. And I said, yeah, I'm good. I said, just have one of those days. It's conference hangover, man. Times 10, you know, it's definitely times 10 because you also were not at a conference. You were in essentially paradise because I'm sure the seven days you spent there, the weather was better than what you flew home to. (laughs) easily yeah. to put that, right 
And it's crazy because that island, those islands, they just have something about them that if you've never been there, it's very hard to describe to other people, you know, and that's what I was telling you guys before you went. And then Jeremy, you and I were talking about it today. It's the people, it's their culture, it's their attitude. You know, it is that Aloha state of mind that they are mm -hmm. in all yeah. the time, right? Even in post disaster, you know, um, and it, it's just this unbelievable feeling. And then you land back here in New Jersey to a place that, we all live in love, but it's not that, right? Well, I told you, I told you before, I don't know if I said it while we were recording or before that, I said, do you know my Texas story? Because this parallels my Texas story. Um, last year, I was at a conference in Texas, and on my way home, I'm taking the early flight out of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I walk past, uh, I'm walking to the gate, it's like 5.30 in the morning, taking an early flight. I walk past the first gate, it's connecting flight to Houston. Everybody's sitting down, calm, collected, dressed well, luggage is at their feet, right? Everybody's good. I walk past the next gate. It's going to like Denver, Colorado or something like that. Walk past. Everybody's dressed well, respectful. There's no loud music. People are on their phones, but it's courteous, polite, friendly. I come up on the Newark, New Jersey gate, and it's literally chaos. There are people dressed like, like some of the women were dressed like hookers, fat rolls hanging out, right? You got kids screaming. You got food wrappers on the ground. You have people arguing with the gate attendant. You have people talking on their cell phone on speaker. And it's just going on and on and on. And I sit down there and I go, what am I doing? And then I come home from this flight. Now, that's like a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour flight. I come home. I land. I come home. Terry goes, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it, man. There's still really great places in this world. And it's like where I live, man like where it's surrounded by New York city and all of the, all of the bullshit that goes on here, it's just getting worse. And I, this isn't like a, I'm not taking a political stand or anything like that. I'm just talking about raw observation. There's too it's, many people. That's all it is, it has just gotten terrible here. Too many people. And I just, I'm South. It's not just too many people though. It's that sense of entitlement everybody has here. It's all like, of it. I mean, listen, there's sense, there's sense of entitlement in other communities too. It's how you act. It's how you carry yourself. It's the fact that you have zero respect for the people around you. Yeah. Isn't that so? So in Hawaii, right? Like, I don't want to cut your story off. No, no, no. It's good. Not New Jersey sucks. That's why I'm doing this that, with you. You got to keep order here today because I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm trying to. It's hard to control you as, as the host here or whatever. But that is something too that I noticed um, so I was on Oahu at one, one time for my honeymoon and then we did a cruise and then, uh, the second, uh, se uh, whatever I've been to Hawaii a few times, but in Maui, that, uh, respect level for elders and that respect level for everyone, you know what I mean? And, and granted, there are definitely some, some trashy people there and, you know, people that don't follow along with that script. However, the majority of the people that I've encountered on my time there have just been unbelievably respectful and especially for age. You know, I noticed that right off the bat, like elderly people are treated with just a reverence level of, of I've never seen before in my life. A hundred percent. I want to speak to this because we spoke at length about the, very much this, right? Part of... How this whole trip started, let me just give a little background, and then I want to speak to what you're talking about because it has everything to do with what we did for the past week there, right? So, like, I I didn't like what I was seeing on social media about the fires that happened in Lahaina. 
uh, Hawaii, which is on the island of Maui. Um, not that I didn't like what I was seeing, but there was a lot of misinformation being put out. There was a lot of money very early on being raised by a lot of different people, different social media groups, different organizations, and so on. And everybody's giving to a different cause. Everybody's giving to a different name charity, if a charity was even named. And I'm watching this money being raised, and I'm like, this is literally a day or two after the fires happened. And it's like, well, where is all of this going? Like, where? who's is the money making it to the hands of the people that actually need it? Because when it's that early on, there's no way anybody has anything organized yet. There's just no way. And so I was concerned about that. And as, as a leader in the, in the fire service space, like it's important to me that we take the initiative to find out the truth on things. And so what I, I, what my gut was telling me was I'm uncomfortable about this and I'm not getting behind or reposting anything for anybody to give anywhere until I know that it's legit. And so I reached out to a friend, um, Shane Furuta, who is a federal fireman in Oahu. And I reached out to him and I say, Hey brother, um, you know, I, I'm just, it makes for, uh, you know, sorry to hear what's going on there. I'd love some background. I'd love to know what's going on because there's, you know, everything I just talked about. And I said, it's a concern for me. Um, he was more than eager to put me in touch with chief Amos, who is a retired battalion chief out of Maui, Hawaii. Um, and is involved uh, neck deep with everything going on there. Um, and so he said, this is the guy you need to talk to. He's like, I worked with him for the first two weeks after the fire or first three weeks after the fire. I went there myself and helped out in a different pod, supplying all these things. So I said, great. So he puts me in touch with him. And um, and and so Amos uh says, hey, I'll do, a, I'll do an episode with you. He's like, I haven't done any interviews yet with anyone, but I'll sit down and talk with you. So we talked for an hour on the podcast, recorded it, and then we spoke for another hour, hour and a half after the podcast that nobody heard, and that was me asking him a lot of questions about the Hawaiian culture, his faith, and all of that, because it plays very much into the heart of what's going on there, and I want to get into all this. And so um, we did that episode. You can find that episode. It's, it's listed, and it's done very well. A lot of people have listened to that episode. Um, and so, uh, and so afterwards he says to me, um, I'd like you to come here. I'm inviting you to come to Maui. And I was like, oh, that's great. I'm like, thanks so much. You know, it's an incredible opportunity. Um, never did I think two and a half weeks later, I'd be standing in Maui. Um, I really thought it was more of a pleasantry and something nice to say, not going to happen. Literally the next day, Shane Furuta calls me and says, Hey, the chief wasn't kidding. Um, he wants you to come. And in fact, he expects you to come. So, uh, this is what we need to do to make it happen. So we, we made some things happen. Um, and next thing you know, I'm on a plane with Sebi, my wife and my two kids, and we're going to Maui and two, literally two and a half weeks later, we're on the ground on the beautiful Island of Maui, which again, speaks to that culture 100%. There, that, you know, the chief wanted you to come there and really give you guys the feel and the sense of what happened. You know, listening to episode 273, listening to him speak, knowing uh, firefighters from Maui and, and how they speak of their area that they work in, their island that they live in. You know, I, I had no idea. And, and two, listening to your vlogs about media coverage, that there were multiple fires in multiple parts of the island until yeah. I listened to your episode with him. And you know, everything focused on historic Lahaina town, which the most of the town was lost, correct? You guys were yeah. on the ground yeah. there, Absolutely. which again was a humongously large fire. And I like not that I liked, but one of the things that the chief said that everybody needs to really think about is, you know, the Maui fire department 
has trouble handling one major incident because there is no mutual aid. Limited resources, man. You're on surrounded by water. What are you going to do? You, you only got next is 40 minutes away. The next what is? Then your next due is 40 minutes away. Yeah, from a boat or a helicopter or no, no, your next day oh, in no. general. Island in some of the places. Yeah. yeah. And we'll we can we're gonna dive into all this stuff because this is yeah. stuff that I want to talk about. This is gonna be a great episode because but, there's but so I much here. Too, you know, that that's all part of it. So let's let's just get into it then because I, I listened to 273. I highly suggest if you're listening to this now, go back and, and listen to episode 273, um, you know, to kind of get the sense of of the chief's feelings and what he did. And, you know, when you guys went there, you know, the first thing that you did on a Sunday was you, you went to church with them, correct? We did. It was important to me, right? So we were we were kind of, when I tell you we pulled this thing together in two weeks, I mean, we literally pulled it together in two weeks. And we didn't know, I grabbed Sebi, Sebi put life on hold, I put life on hold. Um, I felt it was important for me, if I could get my wife and children there with me, I wanted them there. Um, because one, I wanted them to be exposed to this Two, I wanted my kids. My kids are very smart. They're 15 and 16-year-old girls, my two youngest. And I thought it was an incredible – one, hey, it's Hawaii, right? If I can get my family to Hawaii, I will. Two, um, I wanted them to get an appreciation for what I had come to learn about the culture there, the people, and the experience. And um, in the face of tragedy, you have beautiful things happening there. Um, and, and that's all part of this story. And so that is why, you know, coming off of this and now having a day and a half to really think about this, as I play everything over in my head, I think the biggest part was chief Amos wanted us there because he wanted us to figure it out for ourselves so that we can share the story. It's one thing to be told. It's one thing to be educated over a zoom or a phone call about the way things are, what's occurring there. It's another to go see it firsthand and talk with the people that are directly involved. And what, what I can tell you is this, um, it was important for us from the get to establish trust with, with, with the chief, his family, and then obviously the fire department, the, and every, the community leaders, the civic leaders, the politicians, whoever we were going to come in touch with, we had to establish trust in the beginning. I know that through our podcast with Chief Amos, I know he was a very spiritual man. I mean, he comes from literally the founding bloodline of the Hawaiian people like this guy. And you talked about the importance of of um, of order and you talked about the importance of elders in the community and so on. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what we witnessed and what we come to know. And so, you know, so he was he was the guy he was the, he is the guy. And I, I want to go into all that because it's so powerful. But my point is this to establish trust with him. I knew first on that we had to go all in. And so Sebi put his life on hold. I put mine on. We fly over. We get there. And the first day there, um, you know, up to we flew in on a Saturday. We got in late Saturday night. It's a six hour time difference. So we're all whacked out to begin with. The next morning we had to be up because we were going to church with the chief and his family. And then we were having a barbecue at his house. And now I've never met this guy other than one Zoom call and a couple phone calls. That's it. You want to talk about brotherhood? You want to talk about a guy that believes in his gut and follows what God's will is. That's what he kept saying. It's God's, it's God's will. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be, it's God's will. And he shared some personal stories with us too, that are just super powerful that really puts things in perspective and what he did in his trust in us. I know he was feeling us out because in the beginning it was, I have a couple of things lined up for us. So we didn't know what our days were going to look like. 
after, uh, I think after our first day and then Monday, we started interviews at like eight o'clock in the morning. Um, with the first guy we interviewed was a, uh, was captain Blackburn of, uh, 11 engine. And, um, they were basically the first in engine company on the fire. And, um, he is a spiritual man. He's a holy man. He is a Hawaiian man. And I will tell you that this guy, um, wow. Like we went all in and bang, like it was just this emotionally charged conversation, um, and it was powerful. Um, and their from passion, there, what their what? passion, the, their passion <sighs> is so it's authentic. Pep. That's yeah, authentic. It's, it's, it's I guess it's a great word to use. Authentic. There is, there is no embellishment. There is no worried about what you look like in the eye of the guy next to you. There's no worry about any of that stuff. The only thing they care about is that aloha way of life. It's the it's doing right because you're expected to do right because that's how you're raised in this order. And I'm and the order is very important. And when things go out of order is when you have problems. I throughout the week, it was funny. Sebi and I would drive from place to place. And and I mean, I'm telling you, we're traversing this island back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I learned we didn't even need a map after a while. Like I knew all the major roads, I knew the cut throughs, we knew where to ate breakfast. Like we found like all the like it's not hard to do. It's a bigger island than I thought. Yeah, and it's, in, it's not, in conversation. A lot of people didn't, a lot of people were like, oh God, like the, the fire consumed the island. And I'm like, no, the fire was a sliver, just a small sliver of the island. The island's quite large. I mean, a lot of it's uninhabitable because it's volcano and mount, steep, steep mountains and things. But where the fire was, it was Lahaina Town and, and two other or three other locations throughout the island. But the Lahaina Town fire obviously was the largest and, and most deadly and, and destructive. So that's the one that's getting all the attention. But there were other fires in, in the upcountry and some other places that they were dealing with the same day. Um, and so that spread their resources thin. But the point of this is we got to know the island very well, traversing it back and forth. And um, and as time went on after the first day and the feedback was super good, all of a sudden Amos is like, I got more interviews. That I got this guy lined up. We're going here. We're doing this. We're going to the college. I mean, we spoke with a doctorate of Hawaiian studies, this beautiful woman who talked to us for an hour and a half just about the Hawaiian culture. So we understood that part of the story. And, and as we went, the firefighting was a, a small piece of the content that we captured. A lot of it was about the people, the coming together, the, the sense of community uh, and the things that happened in the wake of the fire and, and what's happening as they move forward. But the firefighting aspect of it was a super small piece of the content. Um, and because there's so much more to it, right? Uh, I mean, I that's, that's why the chief yeah. wanted to invite you yes. there wanted to invite yes. you guys there to get this other part of the story because again you know and, and i watched your vlogs and and even before you went you and i talked and the major media outlets right they get they get 60 seconds to tell a story and what are they going to tell in that story they're going to tell the part of the story that everybody wants to see yeah it's clickbait that, it's clickbait exactly and that leaves out so much more of it that you guys were going to be able to share and which to me it sounds like you, you you were able to get in there but for amos he had to amos he had to trust you to open oh. that part of his island up to you right and that's kind of another big welcoming thing that i know from my time spent there once that trust is gained i mean you're in now 
You know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and you have to, but you have to live up to your end of the bargain. There was this, um, there was this sense that as, as we were feeling each other out and trying to figure out what this was all going to look like, um, more and more people we would be exposed to or, or interviewed with or conversed with. Once we mentioned that we, he either vouched for us or we said that we were with him, um, anything we needed wanted this man has the respect of the island yeah it's incredible it's, it's and i'm not like this is not a small like it's small but it's not small by any means i mean this is a major it's it's an island but it's got plenty of towns and commerce and they have every big box you want and they have every this isn't you know i had no idea what to expect and in fact it it was totally different than what i envisioned Right. And I did no homework going there. Like, what does it look like? What I figured it was this lush tropical rainforest, beautiful environment, palm trees everywhere, free flowing water, like all this stuff. So far from that. So far from that. We stayed the, the island basically as like uh, a head and a body. And Lahaina is on the leeward side of the head. And it's a small, little and old, very old town that was the uh, really the touristy old town of the island that everybody would go to shops, restaurants, front street, like all this stuff. Now I, Sebi and I didn't have a chance to try any of that. Cause it's gone. Like it's all gone. Right. Um, and so, uh, but this is what we were told and this is what we've seen. We saw pictures, videos, all that stuff. So it was just this beautiful quaint downtown. The one thing, the one thing I want to talk about though is um, well, it was more than that too. It was a huge, yeah, talk about something. it was a huge cultural hub. Like they lost, yeah. Part of their their um, their constitution that was there. There there was a huge historical historical aspect to it. So it it was more than just that, and that's why it it left such a deep wound for everybody that was there. You know, it it, it was more than just a, a section of commerce. You know, it was their cultural capital in a way. For, was there no help? It was it was them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which and again, they, I had no no idea that that had occurred. You know, like those are the things that I can't wait to see as the story. The other, the other big part of this too is um, how I'm explaining it to people. I've I've explained it a couple times today to people, and I'm kind of like trying to rationalize a lot of what we saw and learned and trying to break it down to put it in perspective. Because it's even like I was showing somebody some pictures today, and I'm like, it don't even look at the pictures. It it does not even do justice, like what this place is. And I'm not talking about fire photos. I'm talking about just the, the island itself um, and so on. But the island is the way the island is, is one side is super wet rainforest and the other side is very barren and dry. And um, and so it's a stark contrast between where you are on the island is what the environment's like. They have like every climate there. They have every type of, you know, there was a section of road that we drove through um, without Sebi because Sebi had left at the time. He left the day before. And uh, he missed the best part of the trip. I hate rubbing that in, but he did. Um, so we just have to go back to do it again. But yeah. we did this road to Hana, it's called. And Hana's all the way on the far side of the island on the body. And it's this very remote. The only way you can get there are these super tight one lane, one and a half lane roads that wind up the mountains through the rainforest and then whatever. And then everybody says you turn around there and you go back. But you can take the road all the way around if you want. It's a longer trip, and rental cars are not allowed on that road. 
what do you think I did? I was like, I got to go see this, right? So we drove the whole damn thing. It was like four and a half hours to go around the one side of the island. Um, it was the most incredible experience. I mean, we're driving. We had a rented uh, Tahoe. We had a brand new Tahoe Z71, like beautiful truck. Tourism's not open right now in Maui. It is. Like you can go there and tour, uh, you know, be a tourist. But the governor had shut down the advertising for that was going to be one of my questions to come to Mount. So, I mean, obviously, after that happens, yeah. right? Where mm-hmm. listen, there was just a, a major disaster here. No sure. one's here. And then about maybe two and a half, three weeks later, it was sort of like, no, we need tourism because tourism is one well, of their major industries. There. It is. And and so this is this is a big part of the ongoing struggle. Um I want to talk about that, but I want to finish this part of the story first because we're jumping okay. all over. So we go, we go on this ride. Just write that down there, host. That we're going to come his, back in to his the, host way. In, write in, that down, host. You got your notepad in the host here. You know, here, let me write that down. So, come back to tourism. So anyway, we do the we do the road to Hana. We take the long ass drive out, and it goes from rainforest and driving literally two hundred feet above the ocean water on a single lane, no guardrail, dirt roads. That literally, if you sneezed, you you and your family die. Like you will, you will fall off this cliff. Be dramatic here. No, I'm not. I I swear to God, like this is the oh, hairiest. I was being sarcastic. Okay, too. this was the hairiest drive I've ever done. And I'm a I'm a I drive all the time. Like I whatever. This was batshit crazy part of this drive. It was crazy and and it was amazing all in the same breath. But then all of a sudden you come up, you come over and then you're in the desert. And when I tell you the desert, it looks like the desert. It's completely dry, it's brown and there's wild goats. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of goats eating the the grass and they're and it's insane. It's you go from rainforest to desert back to rainforest back to civilization in a matter of hours and it's the craziest thing but it is the most beautiful place i've ever been um which complicates all of this because um and i've been telling everyone that you know the 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 island is beautiful the people are even more so and that was the experience for us and so we traversed the whole island back and forth doing interviews. We probably did 20 interviews or more throughout the four days that we were on the road doing interviews. We we traveled four days doing interviews. Sebi went home and then I enjoyed a day or two of my family before we flew home just as a little downtime. Because trust me, we needed it. I don't know how Seb's doing it. Seb didn't get any downtime. He had to come home for a wedding and he went to a wedding and then he's going back to work. Like, like 19, he can handle it. Emotional, bro. It was a heavy. I really got sick. It was a heavy, heavy week. And, uh, you know, you know something I, else too about, about the people there that, that yeah. you kind of said, but didn't say it's, it's that they're so genuine. Everything they say is with a genuine purpose and passion about whatever topic you're talking about. You know what I mean? Whether it's firefighting, whether it's polo. I don't know if you got to meet any polo players. Polo is very big on that island. And it just happened to be something that the community I was with was very big in and it was unreal. Um, I, I was fortunate to meet a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master when I was there. Just everything is such so passionate and genuine in the way that they, it's almost infectious, I guess is a good way to put it, right? Where you're just like, this is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, and then, and the, these and, interviews had to have done that for you. And that's that's what goes to, um, that's what goes to this whole experience, right? Um, the fires were devastating. Uh, and we can get into the the details of it all if we want to. But 
like I said, the fires are such a small part of the story. To understand what happened there and what they're dealing with now started long before the fires. And through the conversations and interviews that we did, we talked to a retired firefighter um, who, or two of them, one was uh, one was a chief, one was a captain. They both talk about prevention, and this fire could have been prevented. And they talked, and they and they presented several different things that they talked about that when the when the sugarcane plantations were there on that side of the island, the properties were well maintained and kept and irrigated, and so they never had this dry, barren land like they do today. There was, you know, they talked about fire buffers, they talked about fire breaks, they talked about livestock, livestock like the goats and cows. They keep the grass down. If the grass is short, it's not a, doesn't pose a fire danger. Right. Like all these things. And they were saying that these were things that were pointed out. They had a 2018 fire that Chief Amos was in charge of um, in Lahaina Town as well. That was uh, pretty devastating for itself at the time. And they lost uh, a lot of property and and uh, acreage from another fire that was fed by hurricane forced winds um, and so on. And a lot of what came out of that said, we need to do better. Uh, this will happen again and it will happen on a much larger scale. And that's unfortunately what happened on August 8th was they had 80 to 100 mile an hour wind gusts on top of a sustained wind. Well, you know, just under that. Um, and they had a, a vegetation fire earlier in the day in the dry grass that was large in size. It was contained by lunchtime. They were able to contain it. Companies started downsizing. Now, at the same time, though, they were having fires light off in other parts of the island. When you have an island fire department, bro, like there's only so many resources and where they are in Lahaina town, they have an engine, they have a truck, they have a water tender brush truck, right? Then the next station, 10 minutes down the road has a brush truck and an engine, but then the next thing companies can be upwards of 30, 40 minutes away. So the conversation we had with some of the young guys, when, when we were talking with some of the young guys that were at this fire, you know, we talked about operationally, they got to punch it in the teeth and they need to be able to do everything. Their engine companies do everything there. And they can go literally in one day's time in their first due, any of these companies can go from a water rescue to a cliff rescue to a mountain rescue to a structural fire to vegetation fire and everything in between. Yeah, they definitely do it all there because they have because there is no. Yeah, I mean, here, who, who are you going to call? What are, what are you going to do? You have to you have to mitigate the problem. You don't you have a choice going to the next town or the next town and the right? next like, town and this resource and this resource and oh these guys have this specific re they don't have Yeah, well we were gone there was a there was a house explosion in northern New Jersey and they called the UASI teams and they did a full USAR I think they they launched a whole USAR team for it it was a occupied single family home that exploded they had like five or six people trapped they had a tunnel in bore shore the building up like there's resources there's endless resources to call where where we live but when you're on an island and a house explodes, like if your rescue company that has a maybe they if they even have structural collapse gear, you know, like extra extra struts, extra airbags, like all the extra shoring, right? I mean that that might be over an hour away. The and localized have crews have to go to work. They have two sets of shores, right? Where we can call, I could call a lot unlimited, of unlimited. Yeah, I can get unlimited shores. Keep sending me shores, right? So. So there's this there's this sense about what they do there. And I think one of the one of the things that was really eye opening is when we went down the road of all of this and we you know, we were interviewing and talking with people. A lot of it came down to the pride they have within their own culture and their community. Um, Lahaina Town, we were talking about it before, and I, I want to circle back to finish this conversation. 
Um, Sebi mentioned, and I'm glad he brought it up because it slipped my mind at the time, but it was a cultural and, and, and heritage hub of the Hawaiian people. Um, and it had tons of artifacts and museums dedicated to that. And there is irreplaceable things that were lost during that fire that they could never get back. Um, and that's a, that's a huge blow to the, to the Hawaiian spirit, right? Because before the fires even started, there's, there's tremendous turmoil on the Island on other issues, right? There's always this level of mistrust between the Hawaiian culture and the federal government. And it showed even after these fires where volunteers from the communities are upholding positions for a week, two weeks, three weeks before any federal aid even showed up before state aid showed up there. There was there was a tremendous amount of outpouring within the community of one helping another, helping neighbor, helping neighbor, because nobody else was coming to help. And that is that wouldn't happen here in the continental United States. It would not happen here in the mainland U.S. It just wouldn't happen like that here. We would have resources pouring in at the snap of a finger, but they didn't have that there. They didn't have that until late into the game. And so there's this there's this uh, mistrust. There's this sense of. um land grab that still is very much real and exists that there are uh, the properties are bought up by the rich and the famous, the properties are bought up by resorts and corporations, which the Hawaiian people cannot compete with. They have land trusts, they have seeded lands, they have all different types of programs there for the Hawaiian people that can hopefully maintain and stay. But what you find is a lot of these homes become multi-generational. It's the only way they can afford the taxes and the, the lifestyle there. And they still live very humbly. But the only way they can afford to do so is if they have two or three generations living under one roof. Now, in Lahaina Town, that was very common. And not only did they have a generational household, but you also have sacred lands. This The properties, a lot of them have burial plots right on them. A lot of their ancestors were buried on the properties that burned. And so the problem becomes, and this is, I was alluding to this before, and I want to mention it now, is when I try to break down what happened there to the average person, I talk about here and in my area in New Jersey, right, Pip, Seb, like there's a structural fire. We put the fire out. We relocate the family. We get them Red Cross. We get them whatever they need. They can get relocated, right? We go through the home. Usually the fire department will work with the family to get their belongings. We do salvage. We do as much as we can because we're community focused, right? But then when the fire is done, it goes to the insurance and insurance comes in, they find the cause fire is investigated. And next thing you know, you get a check. If you have insurance, you get your check. They come in with the machines. You decide to rebuild or not, whatever insurance plows the building down, gets scooped up, Empty lot. You want to rebuild? Great. Put your check to it. You want to walk away with your check? Walk away. Whatever you want to do, right? But it's done. There, you're talking so many layers, and I keep talking. It's like an onion. It's like you peel back one layer, and then there's five more to go because it's not that simple and clean there. They sustained a destructive fire that leveled block after block after block. Each home that's there, a lot of them are generational homes. A lot of them were the only thing these people had. Their spirituality matters to them more so than anything. Their heritage matters more so than anything. Their culture matters. They're very protective of that, and they're protective of their lands. 
And so you can't just go in and clear cut these things, the delays, right? People hear about the delays in, in the news and the Hawaiians. And again, there's mistrust here. So a lot of what's being told when Sebi and I talked to locals, right? Seb, how different was the story from the locals versus the other people we talked to that are directly involved? There, there was a lot of mistrust, you know, there even, you know, you want to talk about all the conspiracy theories that were out there that the mainstream media was putting out and, and you know, you, you talk to the locals and they believed a lot of it, you know, and they there was a lot of mistrust uh, with the, the local governments. But then you talk to those that were directly involved and they debunk every single aspect of it at the drop of a hat. But the problem is there's there's not enough of that information getting out there and there's too much of that overwhelming bullshit it's, that keeps getting out there. It's easy to believe the narrative when you're being told that's what the narrative is. And when you're, you're being told when you're looking for conflict, when you don't trust your state government or you don't trust the federal government, when they tell you, I mean, look at the, look at Biden and Trump. Like, what camp are you in and what do you believe? They're right. both full of shit. It's just what do you believe, right? And what fits your narrative as a person? So if you have this level of mistrust or you've been mistreated before and now all of a sudden you're removed from your neighborhood and you can't get back in right away, right? They're pointing fingers. And they're saying, like, they're stealing our land. They're doing this. They're doing that. Now, there's going to be a sense that Lahaina Town will never be what it was, unfortunately. It just can't be. It won't be, right? And and there's going to be a lot of families that don't go back. There's going to be a lot of families that can't go back. They can't afford it or what, whatever, the, whatever the circumstances, right? It's going to be very different. This episode's brought to you by Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his crew at Taylor's Tins have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017 with over 200,000 tins in the market they are a leader in the helmet front space custom design one-offs to department orders they can turn them around within 24 to 48 hours customer service is what they pride themselves on and they provide nothing but top shelf product and service to their customers Check them out at taylorstins.com and check out their full line of product offering. They've always been a very strong supporter since day one with the National Fire Radio podcast and platform. And Taylor and his crew have become dear friends of ours, and we appreciate the support. And at checkout, for a little extra bonus, use coupon code NFR sent me. That's NFR sent me for a discount on your order. Exclusions do apply. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com for the latest and greatest offerings from Taylor and his crew. And in the words of Taylor, stop burning up leather. This episode is brought to you by the Affordable Standpipe Prop. Let's break it down real quick. Steve and the crew at Affordable Drill Towers is doing it again. They've created this fully custom and fabricated standpipe prop to support the fire service. I'm telling you right now, this is a game-changing piece of training equipment. And I wanna hop into it real quick. It is designed with a four-inch manifold of high-strength galvanized Schedule 10 pipe. The cart manifold are powder-coated red for a durable finish, meaning it's not just a talking piece. It's not something you tuck away on the shelf. This is a training prop that can be wheeled into the classroom and then brought out onto the training ground. And so let's talk about that. In the classroom, there's nothing better than having a hands-on prop in front of the students, in front of the fire companies that are there to learn about standpipe and FBC connections, having that prop in the classroom allows for a great instructional lecture. And then from there, take the standpipe theory and translate it to the training grounds. 
You could wheel the cart out that's on casters. You wheel it out into the parking lot. And that same training prop that you just used hands-on in the classroom can now be used hands-on on the training ground by pumping into it and flowing out of it. It offers such versatility in its approach. It has a two and a half inch Siamese connection, seven two and a half inch outlets, six of which are standpipe valves, has a water motor gong, sprinkler head with a control valve, and a system pressure gauge. You can also upgrade and put three of the most common field adjustable PRVs. I'm telling you right now, this is a game changing training prop that needs to be in every fire company or training department across the country. Reach out to Steve and the crew. Info at AffordableDrillTowers.com. Ask for a demo. Ask for information. Or check them out on social media and YouTube. There's plenty of content out there that shows you exactly what the affordable standpipe prop can do for you. But a lot of the stories that were being told in the mainstream media were not. It was clickbait, and it's not factual. The, the issue is this. We spoke with guys directly involved in the cleanup right now. They can't even get in. They can't even get in to remove debris until all the hazards are removed. Now, this is, again, it's not one house. It's not a city block. You're talking a city. This is this is large-scale building next to building. I mean, they didn't even have an exposure problem. The, the next building was the exposure. Like, there, there weren't even alleyways between half these buildings. And half these buildings, the construction was performed, you know, time and time again as more generations were living there. So there was probably not much of a building code when a lot of these, you know, renovations were being made and so on. So there's a, there's a lot at play here, but they have to clean up the hazards. They have to clean up just the lithium battery cleanup alone of what's happening there. They still have batteries that are, that, that can go off or have gone off. They have vehicles, propane tank. Like there are a tremendous amount of hazards and you're talking about a city, a small city. So the cleanup is not quick, but they can't just let people go in and rummage through. The other thing I want to talk about too, Pip, and and then not only that, but the cultural and spiritual side. We talked with cultural and spiritual spiritual leaders that are very much involved in protecting the Hawaiian interest of these towns. And I was talking about remains and and past generations that live on the property or that were buried on the property and so on. These are spiritual grounds. They have to have spiritual ceremonies to release the spirits that are trapped there. Like, whether you're an outsider and don't believe in any of this or not, it doesn't matter. It's the people that live there have this way of life. It's it's how they were raised. It's what their heritage and culture is. And so they have these they have to perform these certain rituals and ceremonies to release the dead spirits that are there, the people that were trapped by the fires, the people that died in the fires. Their spirits are trapped there and they believe that. And so there has to be a a cultural sensitivity that is given to all the agencies that came in. And we, we met with a few people that were responsible for that. And these people would sit down with FEMA, EPA, all these ATF, like name all the, all the alphabet soup agencies. They have to give them cultural sensitivity to understand that this isn't main street USA. This is Lahaina town in Maui, Hawaii. And we have many layers here that are important to us. And we can't have the federal government just come in and do what you do. You have to respect what our properties are and how we live and how we work and how we play. Like it's in their religion, like it's important. And so it's, it's just a recipe that is all consuming. And, and there's on an no, island, you know, what? like we said before, and it's on an island. It yeah. is hard to get the equipment, you know, just right. think when we have an issue like this on, on the mainland, 
you know, you see just the other day there was going to be, uh, I don't know, you guys were away, Ophelia hit up in Maine. Yeah. I'm driving on the turnpike and I'm getting passed by. I saw him. I was coming home from New Hampshire. From, yeah, I tree saw trucks th- from Trenton or Trenton, Texas. I saw a New York City mm-hmm. Task Force One just cruising up the highway and it was like 57 trucks and vans long. Like, yeah, we, we those things, you can't get them right. there without a wave. It's not, you're, gent- you're not driving there. It's an island. Let's just all face it. And right. then these other layers that you're talking about that they have to get through. It and a, of course, it's a super, super complex situation. Yeah, that's the easiest way to put it. Super complex. Yeah, we could end it at that because it is peeling, really, and, and it's not going to get easier. And peeling those layers apart, um, you just uncover something else and then something else and then something else. And so... Um, I don't, I I don't know what the recovery process is going to look like there. I don't, and it's going to be very long. It's going to be drawn out. It's going. You have to hope that their spirit, that spirit that you or you and Sebi are describing, more you than Sebi, because he said like seven words here. We're going to get him to talk here in a second, I think. But that spirit and those people and their passion for their culture, their passion for their island, will be able to see this through. I just think it's going to take way longer than anybody is going to have patience for and that level I mean, of has patience, to. everybody's patience runs out right jeremy it, it has I... to though that's the important thing you know for what is right and what's best for the people of maui and the people and the residents of lahaina is it has to be done right it can't just be this we're going to run in bulldoze everything and rebuild from the ground up it's just not going to work that way it's going to be too and that was another thing that the chief had said to us you know it, it's it's disrespectful in so many ways you know, to desecrate the grounds that were there. There, There's so much more there and there's a culture there that runs, like Jeremy's been saying, so deep that it needs to be this slow, arduous and and um, meticulous process. Because if it's not done the right way, then you're not doing what's right by the people of Lahaina. You're not doing what's right by the people of Mount. The, the other thing too, Pip, and you brought it up before you mentioned tourism. Now, obviously tourism is, is a massive part of their income there. The problem is, is that has created a real rift within their own community. A lot of people don't want tourism to come back. They want to be left alone. They want their island back. And I don't blame them. And I'll tell you why. Um, And we had to be educated on this, too. We went into this thinking that we were going to be walking through all the burned out ruins. We were going to be uh, boots on the ground and, you know, having full access to all these areas and so on. We ended up barely filming much of it. And I'll tell you why. Um, One of the first conversations we had with the chief when I brought it up, um, he said that that is that has created some of the biggest problems for them is with outsiders. And this is why they put the tourism on hold and so on is because they don't. These are these are uh, spiritual grounds that have been decimated by fire and a lot of people have died. There have been people that their remains still remain. There's a lot of missing still only because they were incinerated um, and they're still working on that recovery. I mean, they're just getting to some of that recovery, uh, to be honest with you. They had to make a lot of these places safe before they could even begin to look for bone fragment and things like that. Right. And so, you know, it's a very real story. And so they're getting ready for tourism to come back because they understand the necessity of that. But what's everybody going to do when they get there? They're going to go, they're going to go right to that area and they're going to take pictures and video of all of the damage and devastation, and they're going to post it and blast it and put it out everywhere. And it's just going to put another eye on what's happening there. 
and their sacred land that has been desecrated by fire is now going to be desecrated once again by tourism. And so it's created a really big rift because a lot of people understand the importance of getting it back in that it fuels their economy and they need that money to come in and funnel in. They need jobs again. They need, you know, I mean, with tourism is what hotels, restaurants, all of it. Right. But meanwhile, you have a massive population that's homeless. You have a massive population that is looking for necessities, looking for sustenance, looking for um, support. And what they're worried about is, is right now they're getting that from the community and from the state and whatever that all looks like. Um, and they're worried that when tourism returns, they're going to be forgotten and people are going to be shining a spotlight on the destruction and damage that's occurred there. And that kind of takes things out of perspective a little bit. Um, and I think that they have every right to be concerned about all those issues. Um, they put up along the roads, they have um, fencing, they put up with black curtain on the fencing so that it's harder to see the damage. But when you come in, if you've ever been there, you understand what I'm talking about. If not, I'll explain it. They have what they call a bypass, where you used to be able to split off, go through the center of Lahaina, and that was all the shops and restaurants and hotels and all that. It was a historic downtown. It's no longer there. And so the the those streets are all blocked off. So you can only travel the bypass. The bypass sits up the hill a couple hundred feet up in elevation, and so you're almost you're basically driving along the bypass, looking down into the city of Lahaina or town of Lahaina. Um, and so you you get that aerial view of the damage for sure, which puts it in perspective because it's wild. And then you come down from the bypass into downtown um, and then you can continue on on the other road. So you're still going to get a front row seat and they can't block all the damage and so on. So people are going to get. Um, people are going to get their chance to see what happened there if they go back and and they need tourism to be there. When we got there the first night, we're staying in this uh, incredible hotel um, and uh, we're the only ones in it. There was nobody there. I mean, literally every room was dark and the people at the front desk were like, oh, hi, we knew you were coming. It's eerie. I did that for swine flu in Mexico. And wow. like a wedding to go this to was, this was when the... you're in a hotel, like the only people there. Weird. Like yeah. weird. And then um, as the week went on, uh, more people started showing up. And then the last day, I mean, it was still empty, but I'm talking, you finally started seeing some people, but the restaurants aren't open late. The, the bars aren't open. Like there's, it's, it's really shut down still. It's hard to come back right from anything like that. And whenever you have a natural disaster like that anywhere, it's very hard. And there it's even harder because the again, the people that are working at these hotels don't have homes. Yeah. Right. So it's like you have a conversation. Why are you here? And then we kind of explain what we're doing. And some people welcomed it and other people got pretty standoffish with us. And there was no intent to to quiz them or to, you know, um, to shine any negative light in any means. And if anything, we're so far opposite from that. But what happened over the week people came to realize why we were there and what we were doing and the amount of thank yous and pleasantries we got at the end. Um, what was, it wasn't deserved. Like I was, I was, you know, shocked by how kind everyone was to us and people started saying, thank you. Thank you for coming here and finding out the real story. And thank you for this. And thank you for that. And I'm like, don't thank me. I'm like, you know, this is, 
this isn't just it's a story that needs to be told in in our small world i mean you know what national fire radio a couple thousand people are going to hear our story great but they trusted us to go there and to tell it and i hope i hope the stories that we are prepared to share and tell and the interviews we did i hope some of it gets out i hope it gets out into the mainstream market because i'll be honest with you what's happened there is massive. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And there's a lot of finger pointing and there's a lot of mistruths and there's a lot of information that's just not correct. And it's clickbait. Even when we were there riding with chief Amos the one day, uh, he was talking about a major publication that used some of his information for an article. And they published the article with a, with the, the headline of the article was 100% inaccurate and a lie, flat out lie. This is a major, major worldwide newspaper lied, embellished and lied in the headline. And then the first sentence of the article contradicts the headline, but it, and the author stood by the article and he challenged the author and the author basically said, well, it was the editorial staff that changed the headline. Of course they did. It's clickbait. That's all people read. And so that's what's happening there. And then what happens is that's where that mistrust grows. It's it's sinful, um, to be honest with you. Because- fifth season of The Wire, right there, right? Yeah. Like if you ever watched The Wire on HBO, yeah. that's the fifth season is the media right. and you know and the chain right. and, and that editorial line, right? But so you know we're getting close to that hour, so no, we're gonna keep going because it's got a lot of unless you gotta go somewhere. Do you gotta well, be somewhere? somewhere. I got to feed my kids at some point. Right. Well, we will. I need, we need, but no, I know we want to keep these to an hour. Well, too. Let's, let's not argue. The other, the other thing I want to talk about, we didn't even talk about the cultural aspect yet of this, right? So we talked I'm pulling about in the points. That's what I want to do. Let's talk about experience, right? Shut up. I'm talking. So, <laughs> so what you recall? So, um, the cultural side of all of this, you guys, listen, I'll put you in this private sidebar. I'll just keep going. You want me to do that? I feel like a parent right now. I'm like parenting. You're the bad one. Can what we talk that? about can we talk about parenting for a minute? Sebi became like my child. He was like my son on this trip with my daughters. And they're all giggling. And Sebi's giggling with my daughters. And I look over and I'm like, what is this? They're like ganging up on me. My kids make fun of me as it is. Now Sebi's jumping and piling in on me. I go, I didn't bring you. They bullied me. They I, bullied I, didn't bring- I was like, I thought Jeremy was rough. Holy shit. Are his daughters tough? They they bullied me for the first three days. You're bullyable, man. You're bullyable. You make it easy. Getting away from the topic here. We can have a family fight. I know. I'm just trying to lighten the mood a little bit. But the cultural aspect. No, the the cultural aspect. So what was really interesting is as we went on and we started to learn about the the Hawaiian culture, um, it is very important. The pecking order is very important. Bloodlines very important. The genealogy. Um, I ask a, you know, I asked a lot of questions and and I felt like an idiot at times asking questions, but I wanted to learn like Hawaiians always have tattoos on. Them. So I wanted to, I asked, I'm like, what does that mean? Is it his, uh, the, the one girl, she was like 16 years old and had tattoos on her arm. And I was like, like, that doesn't fly in, in like mainstream culture. So I'm like, can you educate me? Can you, I, I'd love to understand like what this means, what it looks like. What is, what does your faith look like? What does, what does church look like? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you not believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe like, so we, we had all these incredible conversations and there's, there's two things. They, there's, there's religion, which is you believe in God. You can believe in Jesus Christ. If that's the religion you believe in, whatever, whatever your religion is, there's different, religions on the island right catholicism christian christian reform uh mormon like you name it right 
So your religion doesn't have to do with your cultural upbringing. The culture and your belief in the Hawaiian culture parallel your spirituality of like Christianity, if you will. Right. So it's, there's, there's a, there's a difference though there. They're not one and the same. There, there is a difference. Um, And I think at times they, they intertwine all the time. Um, And I was getting confused at some point. So it's, I just need more clarification on certain things, but you know, it's, it's this belief though, that God is important and God is important in most people's lives there. Um, what is super important is their heritage, their upbringing in the Hawaiian culture, what's expected of you. There's this belief that there is a place for everyone. And they have this, and I, I'm not going to start saying Hawaiian words because I'll butcher them by all means. Sebi had a couple of them down. He's pretty, he's a lot smarter than me, but there's the, there's this belief in Hawaii that the first day you're a guest today, you're a guest tomorrow, your family. But what that means, it, it, it sounds eloquent and it sounds beautiful, but what that means is today, you're my guest. I'll give you anything you need. Tomorrow, if you want to be a part of us, you have to earn it. You have to do your part. And so there's, there's I talked about order before. Uh, Chief Amos did an incredible job explaining that to me. And he talked about the Hawaiian culture and how that relates to um, the fire. Like, I ran parallels the whole time we were there between the Hawaiian culture and heritage and the fire service. There are so many parallels that like literally are the, it's the same thing, man. If, if you follow through on what we talk about in the fire service between brotherhood and service and betterment and positioning and respect and authority, if you, if you followed through on that, that is the Hawaiian culture. That's the Hawaiian heritage. And so what was really cool about that is he was talking about order and it, life can be that simple if you allow it to be that simple. When things are in order, things work. When things go out of order, things don't work. And he broke that down in a in a in an incredible way. And part of that has to do with that mantra that you're family. And when you become family, um, you have your position within that family, which then gives you your ranking, which gives you your respect, which gives you your position, which gives you, um enables you to do what you're supposed to do for the family. Um, and you stay in your position and you stay and you do your job and your job is expected. And what's beautiful about that is, you know, your position, you know, your place. They talk a lot about in a couple of the episodes, you're going to hear a lot about order and place. And when you know what your place is, you then have to perform to the duties of that place, but it's expected of you. So I'll never ask Pip, I'll never ask you to do anything that's already expected of you because you're going to do it anyway, because that's the culture we have. I don't have to worry about you not doing what you're supposed to be doing because it's a given that you do that. And so what was really interesting is, is when these fires occurred, the outpouring of support from community was immediate because everybody knew their place and knew what their role was in response to their neighbor, to their to their friends, to their families, because it's expected of you. It wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, I'm doing a good deed. Come check me out. It was, we all dive in and do our part right away because we know that people are in need. Our people are in need. And I know my position and I know what I'm supposed to do. If my job is to go to the airport and unload a plane that's bringing in supplies and I have to do that for the next 30 days, that's what I do. Right. There's no whining. There's no complaining. There's no carrying on about it. It's you, you know, your place and you go to your place and you do your job and it's expected. So the chief was breaking all that down for us. And when they started 
putting out together these um, pods, um, point of distribution, right? A pod. And they, they're talking about they set up at this strip mall here and they did this and they and all these supplies were coming in from boat and by plane. And the stuff just magically was showing up before they even put any organized effort into it. People from other islands were already knowing their order, knowing their place and sending supplies and taking initiative to build and help build out this delivery process to support their neighbors that just lost everything. And literally within the immediate shit was showing up that like it just, everything fell into place. And the chief talked about at the pod when more help was showing up, firefighters from other islands started showing up and just volunteering their time and all this stuff. He said, everybody, I would look at somebody, I would tell them this is what I need done. And it was expected that it was going to get done. I moved on. He goes, that's how we do it here. The problem is, is like, it sounds eloquent and that's how they do it. That is how they do it here. We like to think that's the way it's supposed to be done. We got too many individuals here. We don't have people that focus on community. We don't have people focusing on the mission. We have people focusing on themselves. And that's the big difference between what's happening here and what happens there. And that is why today I have my conference hangover and I'm probably going to have it for the next week or two. I am a pissed off individual. I am, I'm in a bad, I'm in a bad mood and I blew my horn like three times today. It's not conference hangover. This is community hangover. It is. You you saw that community and you're like, why can't we have that community? You know why? Why? And and again, it's not perfect there. Let's not kid anyone in any way, shape or form. No, but. But, but the there life... is that order, and then no, there is that order, and there is that difference between what the way the mainland lives and the way that island functions and lives, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and there's just something eloquent about it, um, and it works, and um, it just, I don't know, I there's so much more to all this, and I could go on and on for hours and hours about it, but but I think that's what those those interviews that are going to come out once we start rolling them out you know what i mean like that's going to be something that people will start to hopefully understand and hopefully adopt into their own life you know i can i know for me my my time spent there post tragic event changed me for the rest of my life you know and i'm I'm sure that's the way you two feel and and sebi go ahead and and share that with us you know your your overall feelings after the trip because you've been mostly quiet because jeremy talks a lot well no just to kind of piggyback off what jeremy was saying there about you know, their community and everything and, and how everybody kind of fits into the, the bigger picture is because they understand what the bigger picture is. And I feel like that's what, what we're missing so much of here is, you know, living in that New York City, you know, shadow. We forget what the bigger picture is. And I feel like we've forgotten about it for a long time. And they obviously have it, you know, they're, they're living and breathing it every day from the top to the bottom. You know, that's that's why they are, the way that they are, you know, and for me, that was what was most eye-opening. Um, and to bring it back to myself, you know, my father being an immigrant from from Italy, my my grandfather fleeing the Russian occupation during um, the the Cold War in in Eastern Europe. They understood that there was a bigger picture there, you know, for for my grandfather understanding this is the life that I need to do for my future kids, for my father at a young age and his father, the same thing is like this sense of community, you know, it'll, it, it goes so much deeper than, than what's on the surface, you know, and, and I think that's wildly important. And I think that's something that, to what Jeremy was saying before, the whole world can benefit from, you know, it it's, goes beyond just 
the selfishness all the time of what we see here. You know, it, it's that sense of community and, and we could tie that into so many aspects with, with the dwindling numbers of the volunteer fire service, um, you know, everything else. But it's just, it was so eye-opening and I count my blessings every single day that, you know, we were able to go on this trip and really experience it. Have you been to anywhere that has experienced like such devastation, like a wild fire, wildland fire like that, like one of the places in California that has lost a whole community or like post? No, not not to this level. I've driven past it, you know, um, but never, never to this degree of tragedy. Not even her. I mean, our community was hit not to the same level during Superstorm Sandy, um, but that's what made me want to join the fire service was seeing that devastation. And that's that was my my light bulb, like I need to do something. I need to give back to my community. And that's when, you know, that's what made me find it. And so I had said to Jeremy too, when, when you guys got there, you know, I, I saw uh, when I was in Redding, California, um, they've been hit with wildfire after wildland fire, after wildland fire year after year. Um, and, and we were in some of the areas that had been devastated and haven't been built back yet. And, you know, it was something that on a scale you see on TV, but until you see it in front of you, until you see that Absolutely. smoke and you smell it, and then when you get to meet the people, and when it came to a wildland fire, you know, I'm always thinking about firefighters, and what brought us out to California were actually police officers for an event they were putting on, and then the police officers and their spouses were telling us stories about how these these officers were abandoning their cars and running from the fire because they were trying to warn people and these are things that as firefighters, we never think about, right? But when you're there in in on Maui and you're talking to people and, and getting their perspective of what happened there and being able to share that, you know, that is definitely life-changing for sure. And it's only going to make you a better responder at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there'd be acts of heroism that we talked about with these people. The, it, it, my, it blows my mind because so many of these these guys, these kids that were there, I they're, they were first year, second year firemen, you know, they, they, there's no volunteering out there. It's a career, you know, they're all career. Um, it, it blew my mind walking in to talk to the, the guys at engine 11 that were there, you know, as the first do they're all for one of them was still a probie, you know, it, it's, he just had a, 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 an extension on his probation because of an injury, you know, but he was in the same operating class as the rest. So these are all first year firemen that experienced this crazy devastation on something that affected their, their home, their entire community, you know, and, and for them, there's another part of it too. And, and Jeremy, Jeremy said this in, in uh, episode uh, 273 too, but they were also, this was their home, you know, yeah. like, I mean, for Superstorm Sandy, yeah, it was our home too that we, but really, for a lot of those folks, they live right near their station, and and a lot of firefighters lost homes. And we we talked to uh, we talked to firefighters that were fighting the fire that lost homes. We talked to firefighters that were fighting the fires, and they didn't know if their families were alive or dead. We talked to firefighters that told us flat out they thought they were going to die. We talked to um, we talked. You want to talk about something incredible? Like one of the conversations we had was unbelievable. Um, He said to me, this is um, this is the first fire I went to and I was kicking ass. And I, I was like, I was too new to understand the how heavy this was until 
things started to settle down a little bit and I looked around and every senior guy and every higher up person that I respected in this fire department was crying. And then he goes, all of a sudden, the weight of that hit me, basically. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, all of a sudden, the weight of this hit me. The other aspect of this, too, is that these guys feel like failures. They feel like they didn't do their job. And as her, the stories of what they did and the conditions they dealt with and the 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 resources they had and like, they're lucky they didn't lose companies of people and the and the stories that are coming out of this. I mean, they were literally overrun with fire. And it was like it they they're putting water on this building and four more are lighting off behind them. And like yep. and then they I think probably one of the one of the things too that that aids them, and it's it's just, you know, knowledge of fire and things is the fact that they had asphalt. You know, like when you watch, so I, I implore everyone that they haven't watched the documentaries Fire in Paradise and uh, Rebuilding Paradise, uh, which is about uh, wildland fires in yeah, Northern California. Yeah. That can give you a bit of an understanding of what the stories that Jeremy and, and Seb heard, because obviously we are not wildland firefighters being from New Jersey. But when you have these affecting uh, structures and whole towns, you know, that bit of asphalt is your kind of savior. You know, in a way, it doesn't protect you from the heat, but it protects you from the fire. Well, even, even then, they ran out. Here's they, they, the, they, they here's, the uh, here's the difference. That's what I mean. Yeah, they ran here, out of the asphalt. Here's the here's the difference. Just in reality, this is this is a urbanized setting with with brittle construction. Yeah. And the thing is, this is that brush and vegetation smoke. Yeah. Okay. When you have hundreds of homes burning in 80 mile an hour winds everything's horizontal they were in blacked out conditions four o'clock in the afternoon looked like four o'clock in the morning and they they talked about the one engine company backed down into a cul-de-sac neighborhood had their lines deployed but they backed down with the thinking that they might have to exit fast and thank god they did because if they didn't they would have been dead and the driver the chauffeur drove out was standing up over the windshield Right. Standing up over the steering wheel, looking down like we all have done, like during winter storms or whatever. But this is smoke, soot, ash, fire blowing at them horizontally. And all he can see is two inches of the yellow line off his front left bumper. And that's the only thing that got them out of there. Like when you start hearing those stories, it puts things in perspective. You have building smoke and fire, you know, you know, ordinary ordinary construction materials burning right the plastic all the plastics all the other shit burning it's a definition of of a conflagration that we all read about in the fire one book that they talk to you about and that's what it was because you had those structures what i remember so i was in behind a town on my honeymoon and i just remember being that tight compact kind of like a new warlinesy looking downtown you know with like the main street older buildings and things and you know, you can see that just running. And so those stories are just as important to talk about and, and to get their perspective on it because they were the ones that were there, you know, and, and to use education, again, those preventative mentor, uh, things that you mentioned before, you know, getting them out there because these things are happening in, in more and more places, you know, just our own rain events here are happening more and more than they've ever in the past. Yeah. And I, and I, I just want to, I just want to add on to that before we move on, but you know, for them feeling the way they feel 
in retrospect is um, we had a very long conversation with the, with these young kids. I mean, these are young guns, man. There's, they have age in their department, but a lot of the kids we met, man, they're young guns, a couple of years in the department. It's like a lot of urban departments where they're just, it's a younger department these days. Um, and these kids are going to have to go through the rest of their career, driving through that one area, thinking about that fire every day they drive through there. And it, they're going to constantly relive did they do what they could? Now, we talked to the first engine company and the first brush company that were there. The first brush truck that stretched the line on the fire. We talked to those guys like if they carry this burden of guilt. But the problem was, is that they were so outgunned. There was nothing. The largest fire department in the world doesn't matter who you are. Those conditions that day were ripe. The recipe was correct that day. And it lit off a firestorm that nobody was going to be able to stop. Nobody. It doesn't matter what resources you had. There was no way in the description of what they're saying and how that fire progressed so fast and rapidly. Um, and you're talking about, you know, not only do they feel like, you know, man, I wish we could have done more, but their historic city that many lived in their own homes, right? Like, there's a, there's a sense, Pip, you and I talked about the 9-11 on, on our 9-11 episode, and we talked about feeling the guilt of not being able to help, right? Yeah. Imagine you were trying to help, and it didn't go as well as we wanted it to, right? And we had a very long conversation with my years as a firefighter. I was able to shed some light on that, and I told them that not every day is going to be a win. And unfortunately, that day, the, the cards were stacked so against them they weren't going to have a win. I said, and going forward, you're going to have other days. I said, but it's the little things add up to trump the bad things. And I said, you're going to have as, as many bad days you have. You're going to have four times the amount of good days if you allow those days to be good. And uh, and we talked about all of that, which which was very powerful. The other thing, too, the imagery, I want people to understand, right? Like the speed in which this fire occurred was like less than 12 hours, right? I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, 12 hours consume everything to ash. But I mean, the fire spread itself was literally so fast. And One to the house point, would go, and then the next thing you know, there's four houses, four houses, it's 12. You know, the, the speed and velocity that they were explaining this is crazy. The first lot, the first uh, nozzleman said he stretched a couple hundred feet off in his brush gear, standing right next to the fire, calling for water. By the time he got water to that line, it had already jumped the street and embers were hitting houses. They had to cut them. By the time he got water, they were already cutting lines and repositioning. And you can only do that so many times. They're, like Jeremy said, the, the condition staying that way, it's just going to keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Exponentially. We interviewed we interviewed um, this beautiful woman, Roxanne, who was a retired 30-year administrator with the fire department. She lost her home uh, in Lahaina. And we sat on her porch of where she's living today at her father's place, her and her husband. Um, older, retired couple. They lived in a, a home in Lahaina. And she said she was home. She heard the sirens. And she goes, 30 years, I worked for the fire department. I worked for seven different fire chiefs. She's like, I know the fire department. I know them inside and out. I'm not a firefighter, but I know everything about them. I know what they respond to. I know, there are, I know how many trucks they send to certain things. Like, she knows what she's doing. She goes, and every time the siren goes past my house, I always have to peek my head out and see where they're going. Well, she did. She heard the, the engine go by. She walked outside. She peeked around the corner down the block, and she said there was a wall of fire, a wall of fire coming at her. By the time she turned around and ran back inside her house, the smoke alarms are going off in her house. 
She yelled at her husband and said, we need to leave now. And he said, we're not leaving. And it, she said, no, we have to go. We have to go. There's fire coming down the road. And by the time they decided to leave, which was like literally within a minute's time and got in their car as they drove out of the driveway, their house was being consumed by fire. If she didn't go outside to watch that fire truck go by when she heard the sirens, I don't know if they would have been here today. And she doesn't know that either. And when you talk to these guys, these guys are going block to block and they're being chased by fire. Think about all the regular civilians that were that weren't even notified that this was happening. People inside their homes with their air conditioners on watching TV. Right. People will come out, get in their cars and now they can't flee because there's telephone poles down everywhere. The wind destroyed the utility system there. There were telephone poles down all over. The fire trucks were driving over. They weren't sure if the lines were live or not, but they had to continue on. Well, the public can't drive over telephone poles. They can't drive over power lines. They can if they want to, but they're not going to. It causes a tremendous traffic issue. Police aren't going to allow people to openly drive over power lines if they don't know that, you know, it, in just common sense, you wouldn't let somebody do that. They didn't know that people were being overrun by fire in their neighborhoods. And who gives a shit if you drive over power lines? Like, these are those things that is real conversation. The speed in which that fire grew, they said that they saw elderly people standing on the corners of the street near zero visibility, and they didn't know what they just stood there frozen. And they said they would stop, get out, and put them in strangers' vehicles and then continue on. But those strangers' vehicles aren't going to get out of there. They're all going to burn to death. Like, that's those are real stories that happened. It's definitely, like you described it, it's a firestorm. Oh. It's just, and, it's... And so the, the importance is, is telling these stories so that the truth gets out as to what happened there and, and why things went the way they did. The other part of the story, too, though, is respecting the culture and respecting their spirituality and respecting their land. And so you're not going to see National Fire Radio pushing out all this footage of burned out buildings and homes because here's the thing. I don't know how many people died in that car. I don't know how many people are still laying in the ashes of that home that we pass by. I have a very hard time. And, and I didn't recognize that or realize that. And I remember Sebi and I had an oh fuck moment when we were in a car. And after the chief explained some of this to us, we looked at each other and we said, holy shit. Like you, all of a sudden, all the weight of it, just like you got hundreds of people missing. Hundreds of fatalities. What are you going to do? You're going to go in there like a tourist and take pictures of everything and share it for the clicks? Or are you going to go in there, get the stories and tell the stories correctly? What we're not going to do, and, and some of the imagery is important because it helps reinforce the storytelling. And so that's that's kind of like finding this necessary balance between the stories we tell and and the the imagery to support that. So it really can paint a picture. But I think words can also paint the picture. I think what I just explained about the speed in which that fire consumed, um, you know, that those type of stories, the the words that we use have to be chosen carefully to accurately represent what we were told. So when I'm retelling these stories, I got to make sure that we're accurate, you know, in how we tell this. But the other thing too is like we have to respect the people that gave us their time and willingness to talk with us. Those people didn't have to share any of this with us. And they did this through the trust they have for Chief Amos, which then gave us the trust to have these conversations. But I can't even tell you how many tears were shred, shed by our guests, me. Like, I, the last night there, man, or the, they, uh, 
they did not the last night, but like forget what night it was Tuesday, Wednesday night, whatever the chief did a barbecue, like at the hotel and, um, and invited people that are part of the process, part of the recovery, people that are part of the original pod and all that. And we, we go to this, uh, we go to this barbecue and we're talking with people and, um, Seb, were you there for this? Yeah, I was there for the barbecue. Okay. And, and, um, and as I'm leaving the barbecue, um, this woman who's there, and uh, I know we got to wrap, but I, I just want to tell this quick story. Um, Your show, buddy. This woman who doesn't look like it was so funny. There's so many white people from Hawaii. So, like, as I'm going, we're meeting these guys in the firehouse. I'm like, Are you born and raised here? He's like, Yeah. And I'm like, Okay. The rest of the guys are all Hawaiian. They all have Hawaiian names. And here's like Joe Smith right at the table, but he's born and raised there. Right. So, anyway, it's parents that relocated, whatever. So this beautiful woman who um, is quite bubbly and and just I really enjoyed my time with her. She works at the mayor's office. 20 years ago, she left Southern Oregon, went to Maui on vacation and never left. Her and her husband moved there and she works for the mayor's office now. So she was at this barbecue and as we're leaving, she came over. And she said, hey, I just want to say thank you. She's like, I've heard about the work you guys are doing here. I think it's important. Um, and I'm so grateful that you have come here. And, um, you know, I hope that this experience was, you know, uh, good for you guys, whatever, whatever she said. It was it was beautiful. And right at that moment, man, I fucking teared up hard. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I go, you got me. And she goes, it was only a matter of time. She goes, if it wasn't me, it would have been another moment. And uh, I don't know why I got, I'm getting emotional now talking about, I don't know why I got emotional with her because I'd never met her before. Um, I never, uh, we didn't really have conversation right up until that moment. Um, But she told me a quick story before I got, before I welled up. And it was that she transplanted there because she fell in love with the place, but more so she fell in love with the people in the culture. And I can absolutely sign on board with that. And I think that her and I shared a moment that night I got, pretty heavy hearted. My eyes welled up. She gave me a huge hug. She said, I know this is not going to be the last time we see you. She said, thank you for everything you do. Um, and she said, you know, we appreciate you and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I just stood there and then she gave me another hug and I was just like, wow, it hit me. It hit me hard, man. Seb, I don't know if you had a moment or not. That was my moment for me. There, there were, there were a lot of, there was a lot of that for me, you know, yeah. I, especially being behind the camera. I, I just get to listen to a lot of, mm. of what is everything and kind of process it all. Um, it, it started right off the bat for me, like with Captain Ikaika. Yeah. Um, it, it hit me then. It, talking with Roxanne, you know, and, and the things that she had said about not um, wanting to go back. And they're, they're too old to restart. That caught and me off guard. That, I didn't that, see that. Hit, that hit yeah. me hard. When, when she said that, and I, I her husband was off camera and I, I was kind of looking at him and I was talking yeah. to him off camera a little bit. Yeah. Like that, that hit me hard. Cause you know, you think about all the people that, that transplant move and all of that. And at that age, it's like, you, you can't start over. Your home was there. You, you can't go back. You don't, it's, it's going to be years to rebuild and they can't go back. It's such a big part to, to massive disasters like this that no one thinks about, you know, and again, in that, in that documentary in rebuilding paradise, like so many people didn't go back. Well, especially because the way she had somewhere else. Yeah. And the way she had posed the question to Jay too, she's like, so are you going to ask me, you can ask me the question. And it's like, what, which question is like, are, am I going to go back? 
And Jay said, it. oh, I think I, I think I know the answer to that. It's like, I'm not gonna. And it, it threw all of us off guard. I, I didn't really see that did. coming at all. I was like stunned. And then I was like, oh my God, like, what did I miss here? Like, what cues did I miss? And it's not that I, I missed anything in the conversation. It was literally just her saying, and I, I can't go back. I don't want to go back. We're not going to rebuild. We can't start over. She it's said, you know, she said, you know, thankfully it seems like they are um, set in a way um, that they don't have a lot of the struggles of which these other homeowners have there these generational homes that are struggling to even be able to survive on the island um and that's a big that's a big part of the story too um you know and even talking with people that are there a lot of their kids have to move off the island because they can't afford to live and raise their own families on the island um and in fact they call las vegas the eighth island because so many hawaiians travel on vacation long weekends and then they end up moving there so there's a huge Hawaiian presence in Las Vegas because it's much more affordable and they can find jobs there. You know, this fire wiped out. Not only did it wipe out the homes and it made people homeless, but it also eliminated a ton of jobs. People are looking for jobs and there's nothing on the island to support them. And so a lot of people are going to have to abandon, abandon the island because of this. So there's it's just one more bigger, like you said in the beginning, like onion to this story. Right? Yeah, this it's just layer after layer. Layers and layers. For sure. So so as we're getting, you know, people yeah. are definitely not listening to us anymore. But so basically what I understand now is gonna happen is that Sebi is gonna get handcuffed to the editing chair and we're gonna start to get this stuff coming out on the National Fire Radio channels as soon as you know I hope so. It's, it's definitely gonna it's gonna it's gonna take some time. There's some things that need to be squared away first, um, because again, what we want to do is make sure that this is gonna be as authentic and truthful as possible. And to kind of piggyback to what Jeremy was saying a little earlier, if you want the clickbait bullshit, you can go to the mainstream media. You can go look at all their sensationalized headlines and their coverage of this. If you want the truth behind the people that were there on the front lines to those that are directly leading the charge on the recovery efforts to this here is where you're going to come for it because this trip has was always about the authenticity and the honesty and the truthfulness about what happened there and that is our mission and our goal for this is to be as authentic and to do what's right by the hawaiian people not the clickbait bullshit that's out there we're storytellers, right? I mean, that's what National Fire Radio is with the podcast. We're storytellers, right? Whether we're capturing the stories of the senior man, guys or girls in the job, anywhere else. Our mission there was to to capture some of the stories and to see firsthand what happened. And so that we could tell the story on our platform. And um, we have an absolute duty, um, an honorable and humble duty to share these stories because they were willing to give us their stories and um, Jay, are you are you seeing this for everybody listening to to understand like are you seeing this as like a a 30 minute episode like one one episode so, so there's a lot a of there's of a, smaller episodes there's or... a lot of there's a lot of different things at play here right so we have probably whatever you want to share too we probably have 20 interviews that are an hour each or more um we have some shorter content too um i think what the each episode each guest will be its own episode in entirety. 
Uh, I think then what we're going to do is some of the conversation is we're going to go through and break up different interviews that parallel conversations and then put together some compilation videos that talk about specific things from different points of view, but the same topic. Um, we're looking at, you know, um, highlight reel of, and I highlight reel sounds so cheap, but like a, like a, like a like promotional, a like a trailer. Like a, like a well, yeah, like, like a trailer, a like a promotional, a promotional film about it. Because to be honest with you, if I had the opportunity to go back next week and work on this again, I would. Like and, well, and remember too, you know, we, we National Fire Radio is, are, are not movie makers, right? We're not movie producers. We're, this is something we have a podcast right. and we tell stories. And now this amazing opportunity has been kind of dropped in your lap as an easy way to put it. And we as a team, I guess, are going to work as hard as we can to make it come out right on the other side. What we um, what we have to do, there's there's one there's one thing we have to do, and that's tell the truth show what's happening there and however we choose to do that has to represent very much the values of what's happening there. Um, and the people that, that shared their stories with us and the people that they represent from the Hawaiian culture. And so I'm very guarded and protected on these processes because I don't want to go in there asking all these questions. Can you debunk this? Can you tell me about this? Can you tell me about, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to form my own opinions to see what's happening there and, and get the information firsthand and then to tell it in a reliable way the story is being told through through the people we interview they all have a different perspective some are firefighters some are retired firefighters some are cultural leaders spiritual leaders politicians like they all have their story but the one thing they all have is a connection to that community and so it's coming through their eyes and you know frankly like i said the stories differ in some areas and so that's good right that's the that's the all, all authentic uh, style of what we did. And um, we just have a duty to deliver it in a correct way that represents the very best of who they are and what they stand for. Um, and I'm very protective of that. Um, I don't know if this will go anywhere further. I don't know if it listen, this might have been a project that Sebi and I needed to do for ourselves. And if if we put the content out and people don't care, then they don't care. You know, but we I needed this trip. I needed this trip. I think it's going it. to, like it's going to change you. you know, it has changed me. Change, um, yeah, and it changes you in, in ways that you you'll, and you'll realize way down the road, something will come up and it'll bring you back to a moment there with hundred percent. Um, and hopefully the people that listen, you know, to the podcast, continue to listen to these episodes that once they start coming out and be, get that same feeling, because that's, I think you said it before, Darian, you know, we're, we're storytellers. I want to tell other people's stories. That's it. I think it will. I absolutely think it will be something more than just the regular, uh, you know, side of things. Because, like you're saying, Jay, there's there's a truth and an authenticity here that is unmatched. And at the end of the day, um, to what I was saying before, we're we're telling the stories of what actually happened by people that have the firsthand accounts that were first on scene that are are so deep in the history, culture, and tradition of Maui and Hawaii that it, it's it's going to be more. It's going to be, it's it's always been bigger than us. And this story especially is so much bigger than us. And it will go so much deeper than that. We have, we, we have had unbelievable opportunities throughout the last 
six years of doing projects and going to fire departments, riding in different places, meeting different people, going to firefighter owned businesses, working with the biggest manufacturers in the market. We do so much stuff. We're Pip, you've learned like what we do, right? Like it's, it's from A to Z and it's the relationships and the people we meet along the way. This to me is the most profound thing we've done. This to me is the biggest changer in my game of who I am. Um, and it's changed me not as just a, you know, um, a person that got to do this experience, but it changed me as a person. Like there's, a, there's so much here and so much that I've learned about that I want to share with so many people. And, and we have that ability with this platform and, you know, we're an hour and a half in on this podcast. I don't know if anybody's listening, not, I don't, I don't care. I hope they are. I, I really hope they are because I think that you know, there's been a lot of great things discussed here but when we start to push these episodes out, they're going to get deep and they get pretty heavy. Um, and I really hope that people are wanting to hear these firsthand accounts because it will give you an appreciation, not just for what they dealt with that day and paint an accurate picture of, of what's going on there, but it will also share with you a way of life, something that, you know, it's going to give you renewed focus in your own journey. That's what it did for me. You know, every morning we had breakfast at the at the hotel before we left, um, Sebi and I and my kids and my wife, and we had breakfast. And then um, most nights we had dinner together too. Um, those moments for me, especially in the morning, I would leave the room early. I'd go downstairs. I'd sit at the, the table by the pool and wait for the restaurant to open at 7. We'd have breakfast at 7. We were on the road by 8 o'clock. Um, that was basically every morning for us. And when I would sit there, I was catching up on emails and text messages and things. And we, we weren't really posting any podcasts cause we, you know, we just, we didn't have time and we weren't posting a lot of social media. And with the six hours behind, it was just like, it was awkward. So I kind of removed myself from all of that. And I was just dealing with other everyday things, but I, I had this appreciation for sitting by the pool. And as every day clicked on, I had a fonder appreciation of going down early to just sit there in the quiet of it all. And, and whether I was reading emails or, or checking voicemails or whatever it was, um, which could be distracting, I did it in a way that um, I had renewed focus on myself. And then when my family came down and, and Terry and we sat and had breakfast and somebody was with us, of course, a big part of it, um, I sat back in my chair mostly and just watched them. And it was important for me, those moments that I spent every morning with Sebi and my kids and my wife are, is, are days that I'm not going to forget. Like those breakfast moments were important to me because I knew what our day was going to be. I knew the conversations we were going to have, the people we were going to talk to. There was not, this was not the most uplifting trip. I mean, you know, it's, you know, and, and yet their Hawaiian spirit made it lighthearted a lot of the way, which was unbelievable. And as much as we it talked, made it, uplifting. it made it, yeah. uplifting. It made but, uplifting. but it's who they are, right? It's there. that, it is that sense of community and yeah. spirit. And even, even the people that worked at the hotel that we met, so many of them had personal loss, whether it was loved ones or homes. And yet they have this aloha way about them. That is just infectious. You, you can't not, you bitten by it there. You just can't. I know Sebi got up every morning and did sunrises. He would get up before. That was, that was my downtime. My sunrises and sunsets were my downtime every day. 
but you know kind of to add to what you're saying jay i feel like we we left a piece of us there yeah i no doubt man and i'm not this sentimental weird guy i'm getting softer as i get older don't get me wrong i'm getting softer as i get older but I think it's because I have this renewed focus about myself and what and who I truly am. And, and I don't need to hold up this false bravado or this false way about myself. I think that I've really come to understand who I want to be and the type of person I want to be with and the type of people I want to spend my time with. Um, and I think that comes with a lot of, you know, time and, and maturity. But I think moments of focus and clarity get you there. And I've certainly had a lot of that lately. And um you know, it's just, uh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And, um, and now we have a tremendous amount of, um, work to do responsibility, yeah, responsibility and work to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, Hey, as a long time listener and, uh, new time host, I'm excited to see this project come out. So it's going to be exciting, you know, and, and, uh, it will get there. Storytelling. Yeah, a lot it's gonna, of, you know, a lot of, it's a lot of everything that's going to come from it, but, um, you know, we got to be careful with it and with being careful comes time. And um, so it's going to take a little bit of time, but we're going to get, uh, and I also don't want to put out every episode back to back because people are going to lose their yeah. interest in the conversation. So we have to be very careful about what gets posted, how it gets posted, when it gets posted in the timeline and so on. But I would say over the next few months, you're going to be hearing stories and, and clips and so on of, of things that uh, we experienced, but um yeah, thanks for doing this today, man. I know I hit you with it, but I just wanted, you know, Sebi and I could have sat here and just talked about it, but I needed somebody to kind of offset us. And I know you never back down from a microphone, so I figured you would have no problem doing this for us. No, I have my microphone here, so it's okay. And headphones. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Okay. okay. I don't. I was prepared for the, I was prepared for the today. So no. no, I appreciate you bringing me in on it. You know, it's, it's been a, it's been a cool experience just from the outside you know, kind of being able to experience it through you guys yeah. so I'm for, to see this content and hear these uh, stories. We're grateful for opportunities like this where, where it, it is, uh, it reinforces our mission. Um, and it, 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 it could sound kind of, I don't know, weird, whatever you want to call it, but we carry a tremendous amount of burden when we, when we do what we do, when we put the podcast out, we take care in it. I take care about the guests we have, the stories we tell and the lessons or, or, you know, things we share. And um, we have to be very careful of that. And so to be um, given this opportunity, when people trust us with their story, I say it all the time, they trust us with their stories. This was a tremendous trust by a gentleman that had spoken to me for two and a half hours one night and extended an invitation mm -hmm. to his home, to his island, to his, his world. Um, and he opened that door for us. And, um, you want to talk about the real spirit of brotherhood. You want to talk about the importance of, of, you know, maintaining a friendship and, and giving in and giving all submitting basically to the process. Um, that's what this was. And it's just such a memorable experience that I will never forget it for sure. Go 50 estate fools. There you go. That's it. Shane. Wasn't for Shane, this wouldn't have happened. Shane Farouda is a rock star, and I'll say it a hundred times over. And I know he knows many people in this world. Um, that guy still is texting me every day, just thanking and saying hey, and so on. That guy opened that door for me to put me in touch with somebody that gave me a glimpse of his lifestyle and who he is. And uh Man, I, I hope I become a better person because of it because I met incredible people along the way. And Chief Amos is one of the most incredible people I've ever met. So 
hands down. So anyway, with that, it was, uh, it was good. And a lot of content coming, man. It was uh, an honorable, um, honorable way to see firsthand what was there. And uh, we're grateful. So thanks. Thank you guys. Thanks, Sebi, for joining us today. Of course. Seb, you're definitely better off behind the camera. Just saying. You, I agree. And, I agree. And, and, and you know, talking. <laughs> now, what's he going to do? Out talk me? It's impossible. It's Im- like, I can't out talk you. Poor guy. He didn't even try. He knows. He, he gave I, I wasn't going to try. I know. And remember, I, I know my place. Sebi, <laughs> I'm not giving up this fight. I will out talk him one day. You'll see. It'll happen. No, you won't. You're not smart enough. <laughs> Why do you got to cut me down? I'm already short enough, bro. I'm sorry. Well, and that was my joke before when you talked about, oh man, I had such a great joke and I held back because we were being serious at the moment. Somehow I was talking about you, your people. And then we were talking about being short and jockey. Like I was thinking, picturing jockey. When I said polo, polo. You were talking about polo. Polo players are not short, dude. Jockeys that ride horses and races are short. Well, whatever. They play polo. Oh, polo gets played on horses. Do they not? Yeah, but they're not the reason. Know, but it was a smaller horses because they're light, funny. so the horse can run at the moment. It's not I just funny. Didn't let it fly. It makes no sense. And it makes no sense. All right, this is by the way. This is back to National Fire Radio. We're done. Anyway. We're back to real over talking. Me. All right. I am. See, now you're gonna run away. Yeah, close this thing up, will you? <laughs> Listen, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I have no idea what episode number this is, but again, you know, Jeremy and Seb, all the folks in Maui for having them out there. Shane from the Fifty Estates Fools, Chief Amos. You know, can't wait for this content to come out. So get to work, Seb, and we'll catch you guys next time. There it is. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you at the see next one. You had to end. Yeah.